Heavenly Father, we invite you here. And, uh, please come and be with us. Uh, we need your guidance. We need your, your leadership. Just lead us into your will. Let us hear from your word tonight. And uh, we praise you for being a very great God. We thank you for your blessings for, for the summer rain here and there. It's not a deluge, but uh, I see blue, blue clouds in the sky, and I know it's raining somewhere not too far away. And, and that's good to see. And, and uh, we especially thank you for, for giving us faith and, and, uh, and, and your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So, um, as we continue, Rabbi Hein is leading this study on some level because he gave me the assignment for what we're to be looking at tonight. We're going to be looking at James, the brother of Jesus. So, um, I first wanted to start by clarifying because there's a s several James, and I would hate to make the same mistake that we made with Philip. I'm assuming the board got erased. Yes. Okay, so um, there are four specific James that are mentioned in the New Testament. And it's kind of important that we distinguish um, each and every one because I don't want to mix up. The first James that most of us know of is the brother of John and also called the son of Zebedee. And this is all in your notes, by the way. <clears throat> Does anyone know what happened to him? How his life ended? Oh, interesting. Okay. In Acts chapter 12, it says that Herod beheaded him. So it's actually recorded for us in Scripture. And at that time, Peter went to jail. And it, so that's kind of what happened to that James. And another James that's mentioned is another. He was an apostle. Okay, but he was sometimes referred to, and this isn't meant to be a derogatory term, but he was called James the Less as one of the, the apostles, and he was, he was the son of Alphaeus. Okay, and then the third James we actually have, his name was, uh, there's someone named Judas, who was the other apostle, but James was his father. So he was the father of Judas, and not Judas Iscariot, by the way, but he was father of Judas. So there's kind of three of the James, and then the last James is the James we'll be looking at tonight, the, the brother of, of our, well, the half-brother of our Lord. And so, I mean, it's kind of important to kind of get an understanding, because it's very easy to mix somebody up. And James was also the epistle writer of the book of James. And it, has anybody read the book, Our Hands Are Stained with Blood? Or is familiar with that book? I'm sure Rabbi David is. And it's definitely, if you've come from a church background, it's a very good um, book to read to get a, a feel for both Jewish history and to understand what kind of things happen. And in that book, um, Dr. Brown talks about the fact that there was no James, but that his real name was Yaakov. Is that to release him, or has released the new version as well, updated version? 
this year. So, oh, really? so if you don't see the brand new one in all the weeks, it's coming out very soon if it hasn't already. And in one of the one of the one of the chapters, he actually calls Yaakov and Miriam, and these are names of names in Yeshua's household or something. Uh, was one of the chapters in the book. And it's it's not to make fun of anybody or to make light of it, but Yaakov is the way James was actually pronounced. And there's a whole, you know, reason why it was changed. And many people have to believe it has to do with the King James Version. And and at one point, the the translation was, was stalling. The funding was looking like it was going to run out. And then they approached the king and said... But King James, Jesus has a brother named James, and you've got to continue the funding of this translation. So uh, thus James was begun and James started. But when you actually look in the Greek, it's the same word, and it's the same idea as Jacob. Jacob. So, um, and in... Jacob, in, in talking about him tonight, I'm just going to keep it as James, but it is an important point to kind of emphasize and to know. But in a sense, James has a, a life that's very interesting because I feel like it represents so much of what we do and don't know. Um, I feel like throughout the New Testament, he's kind of there, but he's not maybe exactly identifiable at times. And I, wanted, I, I want to preface that by saying each of us can see pictures throughout our experience of salvation or, or ideas of people maybe who had a, a powerful impact on us or people that influenced us. And in many ways, James is kind of that type of person. He's kind of a character in the background but maybe he's not always seen, or maybe you're thinking, oh, I know that guy, if you ever go through old pictures and you say, I know that person, I think I know that person. And James is kind of that kind of person. And I think it's a good thing to remember, because all of our lives are kind of a snapshot of different things, or different things we know. I, I count it a privilege to come and teach before you, because I feel like sometimes I get to share little snapshots of my own life before you that maybe things you didn't know about me or things you didn't know. And so it's kind of interesting that we all kind of see these little snapshots, but we don't necessarily see that. And so when we look at this study, unfortunately, James isn't always called James in the different passages we see. He's maybe referred to as being part of Yeshua's brothers or part of his family. And so it's kind of an interesting study because we're not really always finding specifically where he's mentioned and what he's always being referred to and talked about. And so it's kind of, uh, I'm looking at the whole, his whole life in a sense, and he's kind of got a life in which we see things that happened. And a lot of people look at James in terms of, he was Yeshua's brother, but, you know, to grow up in that household must have been really hard because everybody would have said, you know, parents, can't you be more like Yeshua or can't you be, you know, and that might have been the case. I don't know. I mean, a lot of times I think when we look at things 
And, and I mean, I wouldn't sit there and say that's not the truth, or it is the truth, but I think a lot of times those are arguments from silence. We don't really know what it was like to grow up in Yeshua's house. And, you know, there's all kinds of tradition within the Apocryphas at times that talk about how, you know, Jesus had a friend who died and raised him from the dead. And none of this stuff is found in Scripture, but I think it's kind of interesting conjecture that people think, you know, these different stories that we have to kind of fill in the blank and understand things. But there's things that we can understand about James and about Yeshua's family that we don't need to always dig in and think that way. One thing that's not in your notes, and I think it's important to mention, there's, there's a thing that's mentioned in, about Yeshua and how he grew up. And I bring this up because it's important. I grew up in a situation with my father who is very new age. And he had this understanding that, you know, Yeshua had come to this point in his life. He didn't really know if he was God. And he went to India and he studied with the Dalai Lama and all this other kind of crazy stuff. And there are these kind of theories out there. But it doesn't say anything about that in the Bible. It just gives us a couple lines about Yeshua's uh, childhood. It says in Luke chapter 2 that Yeshua began to grow in wisdom and in knowledge. And he became a person that had favor both with men and God. And the reason why I bring that up is because it's very similar wording to what we have in the Torah about Joseph. And when Joseph was in Egypt, and as he began to grow up in Egypt, and he was in a different place, it said over and over again, God was with Joseph. And God did work with Joseph. And Joseph, everything that Joseph did was blessed because of the presence of God. And it's kind of the same thing with Yeshua, but you would also think, too, that possibly Yeshua had a very blessed family. Now, it's not also, I'm also going to probably not get into the whole uh, philosophy, and I'm sorry if I offend anyone Catholic, but Mary and Joseph, I believe, had kids and more family afterwards from what the scriptures tell us. And we're going to look at some of those scriptures so that we can understand um, who was in the family and what they said and what they did and what were their different attitudes of the family as well. Because obviously the scripture tells us those things. Scripture tells us that uh, not everybody embraced what Yeshua had to say. And that was probably hard for Yeshua, but it was also a common thing that was going on. And so I want to look um, specifically at John chapter 7. In verses 2 to 5, in which this talks about this. And if someone else would look up Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 25. So in John chapter 7, we've, we've had the feeding of the 5,000 and... Um, we know that at the end of John chapter 6, it tells us that many of Yeshua's disciples turned away from him, and um, even Jude, Jesus, Yeshua makes the point of saying, my words are spirit and life, meaning that he saw that his word was very powerful, and, I, and it was definitely a, a, a deal breaker, as people say today. 
you know, it's a deal breaker if, if you don't take off your shoes when you come into somebody's house, or it's a deal breaker if you like this food and they like that food, or stuff like that. But this was this was a deal breaker, and many of the disciples stopped following Yeshua, and we have uh, th that recorded at the end of John 6. And then we have this passage in John 7. And anybody can read. I'm not going to be pick a favorite or... I'll read. Okay. Now the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, so your disciples also may see the works you are doing. No one who wants to be well known does everything in secret. If you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers were trusting in him. Okay. So the end there is the kicker. It says his brothers didn't believe in him. What kind of person did his brothers want Yeshua to be based on this passage? Any, anybody can answer or if if anybody has any thoughts. It's not it's not an it's it's a common belief at times if if you have gifts, if you're doing great works, you should do them so people can see and people will come. Why why do you think you should kind of wasn't that way? Why didn't he want to be flashy? Why didn't he want Do they think that he was you know, all the they saw his personality and how he was patient and caring that they wanted him to be a rabbi? Well he he was already acting like a rabbi for the most part, I would say, but but I mean this is just a question to throw out there. Is there the reason why you think Yeshua wasn't flashy or didn't want to be popular? He knew everybody was looking for a sign. Yes. Well, let's read on. Let's go down to verses 6 through 9. And So if you'd continue. Okay. Uh, Therefore Yeshua said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I'm not going to this feast, because my time hasn't yet fully come. After these things, he stayed in Galilee. See, that's that's good. And so my point here to say is that Yeshua had a message, as Haim was talking about, that was similar to the prophets of that of change and transformation. And he wanted to understand that you don't necessarily have to be popular. He wasn't giving a popular style message or a type of popular... What was always the message of the prophets? Repent. Repent. Repent, turn around, change your life, your, your ways aren't acceptable to God. And this is a similar idea that we see Yeshua has this idea with his brothers is, I'm not that kind of person, I'm wanting to challenge people to change and to grow and to look beyond. And that's not a popular message, number one. There's another reason I talk about membership class, why wasn't Yeshua... Why wasn't Yeshua always like such a big deal at times? Well, it's kind of what we've been talking about Philippians. Yeshua made a choice to be limited. Limited. Limited in his scope of who he was going to serve. Limited in the sense that he was God, but he wanted to dwell us on the earth like a human being. And a lot of people sometimes get very upset when you bring this point up about Yeshua. But Yeshua made the choice to...
to limit what he was going to do and how he was going to do it. And it's an important part of who he is because he wants to show, especially, I think at times we can concentrate more highly on things when we choose to be limited, when we choose to be, in a sense, willing to not always be involved in everything, not always willing to do what everyone else does. There's a great benefit when we learn to make a limitation. And a lot of times when we talk about that, we call that is knowing your assignment and just sticking with that. It's kind of an important value because we can sometimes get outside of our assignment and try to do more than what we think is God has given us to do. He was. They did. And so I wanted to look at the other passage that also uh, gives us a picture, Mark chapter 3, and verses 20 to 25. If someone has that. Then he comes into a house, and again a crowd gathers, so that they couldn't even eat. When his family heard about this, they went out to take hold of him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. The Torah scholars who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the ruler of demons he drives out demons. He called them and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. So an interesting principle is it says that his brothers saw him to be somewhat crazy or mad, as it says here. And it's kind of the understanding that Yeshua, they thought, had to be not in that same sense of doing what should be always done, but it also had to do with the fact that it wasn't his time, and yet there were still people that were wanting to come and see him. And there was a sense of craziness or a sense of of upheaval in their lives because of how many people were following him and how many people were drawn to him in these situations. And they had a hard time with things being different, things being disrupted. And they try to contain him, they try to contain what is going on in this sense. Now, in addition to that, many people suggest that maybe even James and some of the other members of his family had the same attitude as at what we see at the synagogue in Nazareth. And we have uh, a couple different portions of where it talks about that. There are certain parallels. I know we've looked at the Luke passage more than one time, but I wanted to look at the Mark passage. In Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, it talks about the same idea of what is happening, and it also talks about why... It's happening. And so I wanted to look at that particular passage. So at the end of Mark 5, we have the incident with the gentleman that was possessed at the Gadarenes. 
And then at the beginning of Mark chapter 6, Yeshua returns home to Nazareth. And Nazareth at times in Capernaum were the places in the Galilee where he kind of had a home base. And this is kind of something that you see in itinerant rabbis is they have one place that they, they kind of stay at and then they keep going out again and again to places. And here Yeshua comes, this is one of the incidents when Yeshua comes back to uh, his hometown. Mark chapter 6, anyone can read. 1 through 6? Yes. Okay, I'll read it. Okay. Now Yeshua went out from there, and he comes to his hometown, and his disciples follow him. When Shabbat came, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many listeners were amazed, saying, Where did this fellow get these things? What's this wisdom given to him? Such miracles are done by his hands. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Miriam, and the brother of Jacob, and Joseph, and Judah, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Yeshua began saying to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house. He was not able to do any miracle except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was astonished because of their unbelief. And he was going among, around among the villages teaching. Some interesting things happen here. One of the, one of the things I like to apply this to is, um, it's interesting when it comes to the message, how sometimes, and, and I mean, I can probably tell you over and over again, somebody comes to me and tells me they want prayer for this or prayer for that. But it's a constant of someone in their family, someone they're close to, someone they're related to. And they have a hard time hearing that message for whatever reason. And I'm sure you know of people or you've ran across people as well. Why is it so hard for people to connect with the same message that you've connected with? Why is it so hard for people to change? And it's it's a it's the same thing here in Yeshua's own home. The people still didn't receive the the message of transformation. And I just think that's interesting because maybe his brothers were part of that. I mean, that's kind of one suggestion that some commentators make. I don't know. Maybe they were. Maybe they weren't. It doesn't really tell us clearly. But this was the prevailing attitude at the synagogue he grew up with. And because he knew, because everybody knew him in that synagogue, it was hard to hear his message. It was hard to embrace the message because they said, that's the same kid that grew up in, among us, you know. And it was hard for them to embrace that message. It was hard for them to be willing to change. And, I mean, I think it's still prevalent today. It's hard to share with relatives. And, and part of that could be from what we read in the last passage of, God brings division in households. He makes it hard for sometimes us, and, and I mean, you can read this in Matthew where it says, brother against mother, sister against father, each of the different relationships you have listed. And it's hard to understand, but Yeshua, even what uh, Ricardo was saying earlier before the study began about how Yeshua is very divisive among normal people today. 
It's not something people want to hear about. And it was the same way even in his own hometown. I don't know if that means it was among his brothers. It's a suggestion that's been made. It's worth looking at. It's definitely worth talking about and praying about because it is, I'm sure all of us have someone in our family or someone that we've known or someone that's close to us that we're praying for or that we want to see transformed. And what we end up understanding is we know for a fact from what it says in John 7 that people, that Yeshua did not, his brothers did not believe in him. They didn't trust him what he said. But we see later that specifically looking at James, his brother, there was something in him that changed. There was something in him that changed. And it's, it's kind of, when we look at everything that took place in his life, we see all these different things when we see James later in the New Testament. And now I'm on Roman numeral 3 where it says, He was considered chief. Galatians 2.9 says that he was considered the chief apostle. It says James, Peter, and John. And that his name was given first that maybe he was the chief one. When Paul talks about going to Jerusalem later in, in Galatians chapter 2. And then we see that uh, at the Jerusalem council, James gives the final word. He stands up and speaks with the authority that he, this is what they're going to do. When Peter is taken out of jail, he has his great prison break, which we've looked at several times in Acts chapter 12. It says he sends word to James, in a sense, wanting James to know that he's okay, wanting James to know what's going on with him. And then later we see that even in uh, Paul, that Paul consulted James after his conversion. He's one of the first people, along with Peter, that Paul comes and talks to, and that's in Galatians 1.19. And then we see later that James even advises Paul in Acts 21. And all these things James does, and, and, you know, and, and later Jude, Jude writes a letter in which he refers to himself as the brother of James meaning that James had clout. How did James get to all this place? What happened in James's life? And, and that's a good question because we don't see, the, there's only one clue given to us, but we don't know anything else. But it could, it's a very big clue, but we don't know. I mean, a lot of people comment and say, you know, it had to happen this way. And we'll look at that passage, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 7. First Corinthians 15, Paul is beginning his discussion with the Corinthian church about the resurrection, and he begins to recount specific details about the resurrection. And this is one of the details that we hear. A little snapshot, again, not a big understanding. In fact, I would say, as I did this study, more questions came and less answers. But more questions came. Go ahead and somebody read 1 Corinthians 15, 7. I'll do it. Okay. After that, he was seen of James, 
then of all the apostles. Why do you think the Lord appeared to James? Because I think he, he saw that James, his eyes were being opened. He always gave Yeshua challenges about, why don't you do this, why don't you do that? And yet now he's seeing, after Yeshua's death, what he went through, he saw everything was fulfilled. You know, he pondered, because I'm sure they knew the Old Testament. They were good Jews. But family were good Jews, you know, they were Bible, they were, you know, part of the temple. So they knew that he fulfilled everything from Isaiah to, um, you know, to Daniel, the promised one and all. So his eyes were, James' eyes were open, so Yeshua wanted to reinforce him, probably, to say, you must be strong because now you, it's been revealed to you. I don't know. I mean... Here's what one thing one person could say is that the appearance to James could have been very much the appearance like it was to Paul. It's very sensational. You know, Paul's on the road to Damascus, driving his animal as hard as he can, and Yeshua appears to him. I don't know if it happened like that. I don't know what about James's faith needed to be um, challenged, needed to be brought out by Yeshua appearing to him. But it's a major event. It's a major well, like event. You said earlier, could be like I mean, like you said, we're speculating. We know he appeared. That much we know. But like you said before about the the, the difficulty of the, the family member, and this is just like you said it with Paul. I talk about a staunch opponent. Not that James was a necessarily as staunch, but certainly, like you said, uh, it, it could have been. Maybe he was a staunch opponent, yeah. and maybe appearing to James would have been the thing to finally get him. There's one other thing that happened with James too in the book of Acts. And it, once again, this is a little snapshot. It says he's there, or it says Yeshua's brothers are with his mother in Acts ch chapter 1, verse 14. That when everyone's up in the upper room, Jesus' mother, Yeshua's mother Miriam is there, James is there probably, and the other brothers. It just says and the brothers. It doesn't say all of them were there, it doesn't say none of them were there, but it just says the brothers were there. And so I don't know if being with the disciples, hearing the things that they were talking about, because Yeshua told us that he would bring things to our remembrance after he left. And maybe he chose to bring things there for people to understand. I don't know what James did. I mean, like I said, we're all assuming there's not a lot of facts here, but it's like it's possible that this is another snapshot in the transformation of what happened with James. Because obviously that's happened. But one thing Scripture does tell us, and I want to look at this passage, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 9. And Paul in this particular passage is talking about something about the divisiveness and the immaturity of the Corinthians, how they're very separate and how they're very different and they're very immature in their, in their walk, that they're not united. And I like this passage, chapter 3, verses 6 to 9, because I think there's a principle that we can always look at here that is an important principle. And it's a principle I pray on and I stand on for the Lord.
And Rabbi David, would you read that? 1 Corinthians 13. 3. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 to 9. Yeah. Um, it says, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Now he who plants and he who waters work is one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers, you are God's field, God's building. Okay, so over and over again, God is being emphasized. But there's also a partnering in what we do. Now, do we always see the, the results of our partnering with God? No. And this is huge because God works invisibly. I can tell you what that looked like in my own life. Times when I would cry myself to sleep. Times when I felt the strong conviction of the Spirit. Times when I would be by myself and God was working on me. Because I wasn't saved at that point. And that's the same type of work that God does. God gives the increase. God makes the building. God changes people. God brings the growth. Over and over again, it's, Paul makes the emphasis, it's God. But it's God's incredible, it's God's invisible work. And we may never see it until we are in His presence to know. We don't know if it's a prayer. We don't know if it's just those feelings that we had in our own life that began to bring us to the Lord. It's always a work that's invisible that God does. And it's an awesome thing that He does over and over again. And that's what I pray for. I pray, God, do that invisible work. Give the increase. We don't know what we're doing, but bring the increase in this person's life. They need to see you. They need to grow. They need to be challenged. They need to come farther along. And, you know, like Rabbi Haim will say in his messages, are you farther along with the Lord this year than you were last year? Are you farther along at this point than you were at a different point in your life? And this is the type of mile markers throughout this whole study. We don't see a lot about James. We don't see a lot about who he was and what he did. But what we do see is very powerful and impactful. And a lot of times, it's just like a photograph. It's just a picture of something. And we don't get to see all the things that were going on behind the scenes of what was taking place. And so James doesn't have the sensational type, maybe conversion story. Or maybe he does. We don't really know. But God got a hold of him. And what we do know about him and how he wrote his book and the different things are extremely important to our faith as both believers in the Lord and as even as messianic believers. Because James never stopped being a Jew. I want to look specifically at the beginning of James. James chapter 1. And this talks about how he identified immediately. Now, we're told by Josephus and others that James probably wrote this book in about 50 or 60 BCE. I'm sorry, CE, the common era. And so we don't know to what degree 
you know, everything, when it happened all the way, but what we can tell is who he was by what it just says in verse 1. Just verse 1. What does verse 1 tell us? James, the servant of God, and of the Lord Messiah Yeshua, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Okay, so not very much on that, but there actually is. Because James could have said, James, the brother of Yeshua, listen up. I'm his brother, you should listen to what I have to say. But he doesn't take it that way. He takes the exact opposite way of being humble and saying, the bondservant, the slave of the Lord, someone who's willing just to serve him. He has a very humble attitude at this point in his life. And then again, he says to the twelve tribes of Israel, he's identifying himself as a Jewish man who's wanting to connect with other Jewish people. And throughout James's book, we have this these challenging ideas. James is one of the few that talks positively only in his epistles about the Torah and about what life in the Torah is to look like, calling it the perfect Torah, the royal Torah. Talking about if you're convicted by the Torah, what that looks like. If you're at fault in one area, how you fall short from what the Torah says. James has a very positive aspect of how he sees the Torah. James is also one of the people, did you know Martin Luther had a hard time, didn't want the book of James in his Bible? Because James said you do good works. That's one thing that's always been characteristic of Judaism, if you didn't know. The Jewish mind, as opposed to what the Greek mind would think, the Greek mind was always hung up on what you were to believe, what you were to think. But the Jewish mind was different. What did the Jewish mind think? What you were to do. They were always focused on what you do and how you live. Even when we were with uh, Rabbi Zeb Garber a few months back, he said, don't worry about trying to understand and believe everything. Just do things. The understanding will come in time. And it's still something that we see throughout Judaism today. The still emphasize of doing. Doing. And James brings that to point. If you have faith without works, your faith is dead. Something that was a hard sell for people within the church. There's a lot of people that don't like the book of James. It's very much in your face. And I will, I mean, we could spend all night talking about the different aspects of it, but I wanted to look at the beginning of James and the end of James because I think we see what are the main, couple of the main points of what James saw as important that didn't, that shouldn't have been left out of the, the message or that should have been maybe the first of the messages. So, Rachel, would you read James 1-2? What does that tell us? Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Face trials, consider it joy. Does that sound like something that people are going to like? A message 
consider trials joyful? Not only does he go on to talk about that, but one of the first lessons that was really impactful personally to me about James was that in the midst of all the different trials, you come and you ask God for wisdom again and again and again. Does anybody know what wisdom is? Ricardo? You're all on the same tree, but wisdom always has the emphasis on what do I do at a particular point. For example, knowledge can be the fact of when you come to a traffic light and you see that it's red, what do you know that means? Right, that's knowledge. But wisdom is not only that you stop, you maybe look both ways, you pause, you know, if you're on foot, you might want to look behind you or in front of you on both left and right. So, I mean, there's a lot that, and still decide, am I going to go or am I going to wait until it's green, even though maybe it's 10 o'clock at night and looks okay to go anyway or whatever. That's the idea of where wisdom, what do you do when you have said no? When you have said experience, when you have said understanding, well, it's always the practical application. Yes, discernment is part of the wisdom tree. Discernment, discretion, all those fall under the same wisdom idea. What you say and what you don't say, or what you choose to show and what you don't show. All those kind of fall within that, but it always comes back to what do you do? What do you do in that particular situation? And that's where wisdom is so important. And when you're going through a trial, I don't know how many people will agree with this, do you know what to do? Not all the time. And what is one thing that you usually want to do when you go through a trial? Scream. Freak out. Scream. Yes. That's pretty much what happens. It doesn't always think on your first list, oh, I should go ask God for some wisdom. But that's kind of one of the connections in this. In the midst of a trial, go seek God for wisdom. At the end of the book, it's just as important what James tells us at the end of his book. It's something that is important to who we are as believers, because we are to be like Messiah. What does James 5.20 tell us? Michaela, can I pick on you? You may. I just need to get there. That's fine. Let him know that the one who turns a sinner from the error of his ways shall have a soul from death and cover the multitude of sins. Amen. What is that talking about? What is that talking about? Turning someone away from sin, covering multitudes of sins. Why do you think James would end his letter on that note? So if you see someone who's walking in sin uh, and you lead him in the right direction, and telling him that what he's doing is sin, and then lead him in the right direction, 
I've always wondered, you cover over a multitude of sins. Who sins? Both sides? The one who you need the direction or the one who is in the sin? Both and. Both. Jewish answer. Yes. Both and. Both and. And what does James talk about just before this? Because that's probably one of the hardest things to do is tell people they're going the wrong way. He talks about prayer. Prayer. Does that mean... And there's a connection there. There's a reason why that's there. Because when we have to correct somebody, we should be seeking, how am I going to tell this person this, Lord? How am I going to be gentle with them? How am I going to keep them from falling? As it says in some translations. How am I going to do... That is only accomplished through our desire to seek the Lord. It's not an easy thing. In fact, it's probably downright impossible. But that's Yeshua's main mission, is to bring people back into relationship. To bring people back on the path. To bring them into that point of correction. And that's the same, exact same message James chooses to end the book with. It's an incredible book that you can study and study and study and still be learning things at the end of the day that you didn't learn before because James has so much great messages to say. But that was the two things that he thought we most needed to hear at the beginning and at the end, and they were important to him. Now, I would like to tell you that James ended up having a great and wonderful life, but if you read the last statement, if someone wants to read it from the paper, it tells us that he didn't. He ended up dying for his faith, and Josephus recounts it much in the same way in the life of Stephen, how Stephen, too, was, because it was the same Jewish group of Jewish, you know, elders who came after James, who ended up stoning him as well. Could it be that Yeshua's relationship with his brother James, Jesus saw that James was trying to push him into, you know, being, you know, acknowledge himself more, and yet Yeshua stood up against him and taught him being patient. I don't know. I don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us. Like I said, the scripture doesn't tell us any of this stuff directly, so we're kind of just left with more questions and answers. We know James was a highly respected person, though. They called him Yaakov HaZadik, James the Righteous, or James the Just. And so he, he had a very high standing among both Jews and among the believers. And his life is definitely a snapshot that we want to know more about, which we... There are probably tons of people in the Bible you want to know more about, but we don't know a whole lot about James. We just know, though, and the most important thing we know is that he changed. 
also the household that Yeshua grew up in. That's, like I said, we don't know no, the household. The idea of I mean, there's, there's lots of speculation. You know, you, you can look at the apocryphal stories and, and buy into some of what some of the things they said. You know, that, uh, or we could think, you know, like I was kind of jesting earlier, you know, here's a child that's low maintenance, Yeshua, always does the right thing, and, you know, therefore maybe he, there was favoritism in the house. I don't know. The Word doesn't tell us that, but I mean, we don't know that that wasn't the case because we know Yeshua was without sin. And, I mean, could you imagine trying to follow somebody's footsteps like that and not feel the comparison or to feel the the weight of all that? But what I was speaking of is that they were of you know they were they were of the Jewish faith and yet and and they were steeped in it. So to speak, look at Mary because what you heard from the angels, she knew from the readings of the Old Testament and how angels did bring news to people. Do you know what I mean? So it seems like that family itself was very I don't want to say steep, but was very knowledgeable of God interacting in their lives. Do you know? Well, overall, God chose that family, and that was a big deal. I don't want to downplay that. When you know, God chooses has always worked in families. We see that with Abraham and Sarah, and later Rebecca and Isaac, and Jacob and Leah and Rachel. Always that idea. I'm working with a family, and family's important to God. I'm not going to downplay that either. But at the other, uh, on the other hand, I think at times we can also try to maximize more out of what a, this particular Jewish family was. I mean, they probably had their problems, just like anyone else. They probably, you know, the kids probably argued and fought like any other family. One would think. I mean, I'm not saying I know, but I'm just saying that's how families are. There are struggles. They, you know, they things aren't always the way that they're meant to be. Everybody has their different idiosyncrasies and their struggles. As, as a lot of people look at families today and say most families are dysfunctional. I don't know. Scripture doesn't say. So on one hand, I'm reluctant to read into that either way to say they were more blessed and way up here above all of us. Or they were way down here, just as bad as all of us. It's kind of one of those things. I don't choose to do that. I don't know. Well, but if you take Mary, the woman herself, uh, uh, Miriam, and Joseph, man who heard from the angels and listened to, you know, to take care of the child, even though he knew it wasn't his, and you know, so many things that that like the Holy Spirit must have lived in that household. Well, look at the Torah portion last week. Right? Bilam was an evil man. Right. Angels appeared to him. Well. <laughs> I'm just saying, there's, there. I mean, for every one you can bring up, there's also another one that you can also discount. So I'm saying, overall, I don't think we look at that, we look at what we do know in Scripture and focus and concentrate on that. James had a life where maybe he questioned Yeshua because we have one verse that said his brothers did not know who believe in him did not trust, put their trust in him, whatever the case was. That's what we do know. Then we see later, James, the Lord appeared to James. James is now the first. He's considered a pillar of the church, chief among all the apostles. Something happened. What was it? 
and God worked invisibly. Right. I don't know. And then, you know, it just came to my thoughts. Look at Joseph and how his brothers, you know, his brothers were angry against him. And, and that's a great example of the down family, a family that's dysfunctional and messed up, which a lot of people they say, I can identify with that. You know, my family had problems. We fought. We didn't get along. You know, obviously that was kind of an extreme selling someone into slavery. And, oh. you know, I don't know that I can say I know someone that did that to someone in their family. But, I mean, families have problems and people don't always, people sin. It is what it is. People sin and they make poor choices. But the idea is God coming into the, is always in the picture. And how God, you know, plan was, yes, he would be rejected, Joseph would be rejected by his brothers. God had a plan for him, a unique plan for him, as the brothers struggled. You know. Most definitely, God had a plan. Yes, and, and Joseph submitted to the plan of God. He, so his survival proved to him that God was with him. You know what I mean? Absolutely, or even in spite of him. I mean, I don't know. I mean, Joseph also... I mean, we don't know everything Joseph did right or wrong either. For all we know, he could have been, you know, I have all this, you guys are all going to bow down before me, you know. He could have had that attitude and been like, ha, 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 you know, kind of thing. I've had dreams. This is what's going to happen. We don't, we don't know if he was that kind of kid. I mean. But, and they became jealous, you know. But when we think back, back to James, James wasn't jealous of Yeshua. He just. He was trying to understand him and trying to push him in. Say, step out and let everybody know because we're waiting for the Messiah. I don't know. I I think definitely what we do know is they didn't put their trust in him. They had a different idea of what the works should have looked like, what he should have been out doing. I mean, a lot of people feel that way. If you've got sensational things, be sensational. But remember I told you too, Yeshua chose to be limited. That's what we know about his life. That's what we know. He didn't sit there and say, I want to go out to the whole world. He said, I want to stay within the house of Israel. He chose certain limitations. We saw that he didn't have the me first type of attitude like we've been learning in Philippians. If anything, he was God, but he emptied himself out. He chose the humble way to go. Another point that he was limited. And so, I mean, there's, we, we focus on what we do know and not on what we don't know about the situation, if that makes sense, Mary. And, I mean, I know it's fun to speculate. I mean, it's fun to read things. It's fun to have ideas of what might have been. But at the end of the day, God wants us to know the facts. And the fact is, James had a life that was transformed. You know what I mean? Who's guiding him? You know what I mean? Maybe that eventually was revealed to him that Yeshua had direct contact, relationship with Father God, his father. And that could teach James that he has to have that same relationship with God in order to be directed and used by God. Maybe. Maybe it's something that you're speculating on. It may be that James being around the 12th or the 11th, Post Acts chapter 1, maybe we don't know 
what he experienced being with them for a long time and, and, and all the things they experienced. There's so many questions. And that's why I even include the part from John 21. Yeshua did many, many things that we don't know about because they were never written down. And even if they were, not all the books could contain them. So, I mean, we focus on what we know more than on what we don't know. Any other questions from anyone else? Michael, on, in Galatians, um, could you explain to me when uh, he's, uh, James is referred to as the chief apostle? What is a chief apostle? Well, that's for lack of my terminology. Um, James is given first rank among James, Peter, and John. Okay. And so that what I only say is my terminology. He's given the place of being mentioned first. Out of those three. Out of those three. So I don't know if that helps clarify that question. A lot of times, um, I mean, people even speculate James was the second born of that family because he's mentioned first in the out of the four children mentioned in the Mark passage that we read. If that makes sense, that he was one of five brothers and had at least maybe two sisters, maybe even more. We don't know. But it just says sisters, plural, so I'm assuming five brothers, two sisters, family of seven. I grew up in a family of nine, so I know what that's like. But And so can we assume that he was with, before you go, that he, James was with Mary when, they were, when Jesus was being acknowledged and there's a ruckus Mary and her children came. Do you think James was amongst that Mary? That they said Jesus it's speculation at best. We just we're just assuming. We're just assuming. I mean, even there's the incident of um, him prioritizing and saying, you know, hey, when they came to him and said, Yeshua, your family, your mother and your brothers want to talk to you, but he said, no, my family is doing what I'm doing right here. Right. On that note, Rabbi David, would you close us in prayer? Yes, Lord, we do uh, thank you for this look into another. Uh, as we've been calling heroes in the book of Acts, but people that you've preserved for us, Lord, that we can learn from their lives and from uh, seeing how you, you interact with the affairs of your people and your creation. We pray, Lord, that you would um, help us to, uh, to glean from these, these lives the things that are clear, the things that you want us, the, the core things that you want us to internalize and the things you want us to, to grab a hold of. So we thank you for this time. We thank you for Michael Sherry. We pray that... Uh, you would be with each one of us, Lord, as we return home this evening. In Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.